This episode of See Here is dedicated to the memory of William Smith. Long may he reign, father of Conan. Episode 87 of the See Here podcast. We're proudly part of the Pantheon Network. Morris speaking here in Melbourne. Over in Bath is my good friend and compadre, Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Hello. And over in Brantford, Ontario is Mr. Tim Merrill. Oi, oi. Welcome to this month's episode. And before I talk about what it is that we're going to be talking about for this month's show, I want to give a huge thanks out to our good friends, Mike White and Skiz Sizik for filling in all of our shoes for last month for episode 86 when they were talking about the Sparks documentary, The Sparks Brothers. We've never had a show where none of us showed up. Imagine a war and no one came. That's exactly what happened here on our podcast. So huge thanks to Mike and Skiz for doing that. This month, however, we have an interview that we've just finished with documentarian Scott Crawford. Some of you may have seen his previous film, Salad Days, about the DC punk scene. Well, he put out another documentary last year about Cream magazine. Boy, howdy. I had never read the magazine. wasn't available here, at least to the best of my knowledge. So watching this documentary was a real eye-opener for me. We had a fascinating conversation with him. Hope you enjoy it. We'll be back in a moment. What we're going to do is play the trailer for the film and then we'll come back with our conversation with Scott and then we'll be back at the end of that to talk about next month on See Here for episode 88 you're listening to See Here Cream Magazine was our Facebook. It was our social media. I lived by what was printed in Cream Magazine. It was a rock magazine with a capital R. Most people want to fit in somewhere. I wasn't going to find them in my high school. I found them in Cream Magazine. Buying Cream was a little bit like buying Playboy. You didn't want your parents to see either one of them. None of them had any business running, editing, or writing for a rock magazine. We're going to introduce everybody. Hi, hi. What's happening? What are you doing here? I sell dope downstairs. Barry always had an explosive temper. Got a newspaper to get out? I had no credentials at all. We were this team of people who were all a little off. To put it in like a band comparison, that's when the band happened. Cream Magazine being based in Detroit gave it the grit. If you live in the Midwest, it's not all laid back and peace and love and goodbyes. In 1971, the Rolling Stone party line was that the next big thing was James Taylor. Many teenagers went to Cream to learn about noisier stuff. Lester Bangs and I started the same day. He kind of liked going against the grain. What's popular? <laughs> you guys suck. Take Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Here is like musical sterility. Um, at its pinnacle. There's no parallel for it in the rest of rock journalism. It was not a magazine that was about rock and roll. Rock and roll was taking place at the magazine. 
everybody was politically incorrect. That's what made Cream so good. He told the truth. 50 years after Cream's first issue published, it still stands for something. Either you're in on the joke or you are the joke. America's only rock and roll magazine. Yeah. Welcome back to episode 87 of See Here Podcast, and Bernie, Tim, and I are thrilled that we have on a Zoom connection the director of this month's focused film, Scott Crawford, the director of Cream, America's only rock and roll magazine. Welcome to See Here, Scott. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's our honor to uh, have you on for the show. Congratulations on the release of the film. So this actually came out, what, in 2019 or was it 2020? Let's see, it would have been last summer. So about, uh, well, actually not even quite a year ago. So uh, last August, September-ish, maybe the last week of August. Unfortunately, it was going to be, you know, we had a lot of theatrical plans for it, but due to the pandemic, they all kind of went down the toilet. But yeah, it did come out on Amazon and Netflix and everything else been about a year ago. Okay. I wanted to start off, you've been actually running a couple of music magazines yourself over the last 20 years, Harp and then Blurt. And you're also a podcaster. You've also got your own show called Spoke. Well, as a film director and as a podcaster and as a magazine editor, how do you work out what medium is best for a story that you particularly want to pursue? With the Cream doc, you felt that warranted like the full documentary treatment, but with so much that you obviously cover through all those mediums, is there anything that you sort of think, yeah, I think that this story would be best be told in this particular medium? Yeah, that's a great question. I really think in the case of Cream and and Sal Days, the first film that I did, the music is such a part of that story that you need to hear it. You need to hear that music and literally feel it. So to me, I, I felt like the documentary format was really best to tell those stories. Obviously, there's a million more stories you can tell about both Cream and, you know, the DC punk scene, but that was the way that I felt like it would make the biggest impact. And, and with Cream, again, such a, a story about a time and a place, and you, the music really helps capture that. Could Cream have only come out when it did, like the late 60s? It just sort of seems interesting to me that, you know, only five years prior, you know, I'm always reading a ton of Beatles related books or watching Beatles related documentaries. And it seems like, you know, the early 60s in England, I mean, they had Enemy and Melody Maker, which I believe were mostly at that time, either about professional musicians searching for other professional musicians, or it was blues and jazz analysis. And the only other sort of journalism or print that was dedicated to music reporting was more about what's Paul McCartney's favorite drink? What sort of films does John Lennon like to watch? It was all trivial. It wasn't going into the music like the way how we know it so much. It's ubiquitous nowadays. So could Cream have only come out once those kids had actually sort of grown up and said, we want to pursue this. We're tired of all the trivia. We're old enough to actually be writing. The world has changed. There's America in Vietnam conflict. The world is a different place. What changed? Could Cream have only come out when it did? you got to remember, first of all, as you said, rock and roll journalism was not really a thing. It hadn't really been created yet. I mean, jazz and blues were the only serious critical sort of 
journalism at that point, you had a magazine called Crawl Daddy that was really the first one for rock and roll in any kind of, you know, meaningful or sort of somewhat intellectual kind of way. But I think that with Rolling Stone coming out when it did, I think it was only natural for another magazine to come out um, and, and kind of be another voice. And these people were really smart, smart people. I mean, you know, talking 68, 69 in Detroit, there was so much culturally happening. I mean, if you look at it, I mean, just look at the films from that period too. I mean, the films are a reflection of what was going on, you know, in society at that point. And I think it was only natural that there'd be magazines that would reflect that as well. Cream really started out, it, it, we didn't touch on it that much in the, in the film, but it really was a very political magazine at first, more so than, than maybe even Rolling Stone. I mean, it was, there was a whole part of the film that we ended up not using about a lot of the staff members were actually part of the White Panthers, which were the sort of uh, hippie equivalent to the Black Panthers. I was going to say, was Sinclair was involved with the early That's beginnings right. of, of Cream Magazine. John Sinclair, very early stages of Cream and moved out of Detroit and into the suburb. Uh, I forgot the name of the, uh, I'm drawing a blank. Anyway, outside of Detroit a little bit. But yeah, so I do think that it was a natural sort of extension of what was going on culturally. And, you know, Cream really, for those not familiar, just to put it quickly, Cream was really like the anti-Rolling Stone. It was the bratty, snotty. Rolling Stone was kind of almost like university for the intellectuals and the ponytails and the chinwaggers. Whereas Cream was like Delta House on secret probation, super secret probation. You know what I mean? I didn't grow up with Cream. I'm not even sure whether the magazine was imported here. And I was probably too young at the time to have read it, even if it was easily available. So I've had to rely like on looking on Rock's back pages for articles. And I'm sure though that the whole magazine experience is more than just reading separate articles. But the articles that I did see from people like Dave Marsh, who I've long been an admirer of as a writer, Lester Bangs, seemed to me as serious and as uh, in-depth as anything that you imagine coming from out of Wenner's version of Rolling Stone magazine. So was it a cross between we're going to take maybe the in-depth writing of Rolling Stone of that period and mix it with Mad Magazine? I'm hearing the the contrast, but I'm not sort of fully getting it from uh, this perspective. Certainly both Marsh and Lester were as smart, if not smarter than a lot of the, the writers at Rolling Stone. But, you know, they weren't Ivy League educated guys. They were working class. Well, Lester's from California, but Dave was a real, you know, his parents were working class and he was a working class kid. And man, one of the smartest men I've ever spoken to. And if you look at his early writing, it's just like incredible to read something from a kid who's 18, 19 years old. You can't believe he's saying the stuff he's saying. I'm sorry. I think I might've forgotten your question. Just about the legitimacy of cream compared to Rolling Stone, where Rolling Stone was considered the more quote unquote intellectual entity. Oh, I see. Where, I see. Whereas okay. cream was more of the fast, the loose, you know, street level, you That's know, right. street but knowledge, right? I think, yes, and you're right. And I think what you're trying to ask is like, worse. yes, cream was like the brattier version, but it was no less intelligent. Right. Absolutely. Were as smart, if not smarter than Jan Wenner. They weren't beholden to advertisers like Jan Wenner was. You know, there was a lot of pay to play going on and stuff that. (laughs) 
I'll say you mentioned in the film as well that Jan Wenner was uh, one of the um, the people you spoke to in the film mentions that Jan Wenner was almost kind of blinded by the idea of celebrity as well. So maybe his uh, his approach and his writer's approach was certainly more biased to be more maybe puff pieces than it was actual creditable writing and journalism. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Jan was known for, I mean, this is a well-known fact that the writers, they do like a rating system, you know, it's like A, B, C, D, or no, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. It's uh, four stars or five stars, right? Okay. So if a writer um, wrote a five-star review of a record that didn't for a, a band whose record company refused to advertise that issue, Jan would take that five-star review and make it a two-star review. I mean, right. he, yeah, he, yeah. It, it was just part of working there or, or well, conversely. He's like a businessman than a creator. That was, that was before, yeah. that was even before the whole pay to play thing. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, payola yeah. and all that shit. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, it was, it was a form of that. And, you know, I think even to this day, it probably still continues there. I, I, right. You know, I, I right. Know, but, but that's just kind of his, his editorial approach. But that, that to no. me is not really mm. real. That's, suspect journalism well what's really funny too is like there's the people that are just flat out blunt like for example i love the bit of the film talking about lester and uh when alice cooper talks about his review of their first album we finally got an album out lester bangs reviewed it as a tragic waste of plastic (laughs) which we all doubled up laughing over it said that is a great that's a great review. And Cooper's just like, we we're all laughing, thinking it's hilarious. And, and Lester's just completely trashing the album, just saying it's a waste of plastic. And I just, I just thought that was great because Cooper got it. The writing was cream for me, a lot of the reviews and shit. It was almost like where when I was a kid and I used to go to the record store, there'd be that guy behind the counter and he'd be playing something really fucking hot. And he'd go up and go, well, what is this? And he'd be like, this is not for you. Yeah. yeah. This is this is not for you. No, 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 no. You don't no, you wouldn't appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I think a lot of the writing in Cream, it wasn't that they were pompous and it wasn't that they were playing this attitude, but it was this whole kind of thing where this is pure unadulterated rock and you better be ready for it. They told you exactly what it was. Yeah. And these were, you know, and it wasn't just trashing it for the sake of trashing no, it. I mean, no. maybe they did occasionally, but these are people that really, really love the music. And, you know, in the case of like a Dave Marsh, you know, were willing to fight like literally fight over right. the merits of a particular album because right. they cared so much about the music. I challenge anyone to find that right now in a newsroom somewhere. But to that point, it was like, it was, you know, life and death. Right. And there was also that funny bit with Lester. It makes me laugh when you do the interview with the splooge where he's talking about saying, oh, well, I think Lester liked other people better than me because he smoked dope with them and I don't smoke dope. You know, it's just like, give me a break, dude. <laughs> yeah. No, it had nothing to do with that, Nuge. Exactly, exactly. I got to make a confession about Cream Magazine. Cream got me in a lot of shit in public school because I actually brought an issue of Cream to public school and it had something to do with shaving cream or maybe it was whipped cream and maybe it was uh, a certain lady named Wendy O. Williams. You sure it wasn't your Herb Alpert album, Tim? No, it was my Herb Alpert album. I got dragged to the principal's office and basically the teacher pulled it out of my hands, gave it to the principal, the principal said, what are you bringing this to school for? You ain't having it. It was probably worth it though, right? I mean, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was a holy grail. I mean, it was just like, I, I love the bit where Jeff Daniels, when you're interviewing him, when he actually says it was like the 13 year olds equivalent of Playboy. It really was. It, it really was. <laughs> yeah. Even me. I mean, when I, 
younger than I'm a younger generation from obviously most of the staffers, but I went and bought ton. There was a, a used bookstore uh, uh, close to me when I was a kid, and I was also a fanzine kid. So I discovered like punk rock fanzines first with Cream. Knew enough to go, oh, Cream. Okay, this is where all this started. And yeah. so I bought like just like a stack of this high of Creams and um, had them in my bedroom. And I always was like hiding, like I'm, I don't think I'm supposed to, you know. And, right. Uh, just like in the film, there was nudity sometimes, and right. And uh, it was the least politically correct uh, uh, magazine in terms of music that there was. It was like Mad Magazine. Right. It was subversive, wasn't it? Subversive oh, word. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Totally. The two things that really were my entry points to punk rock, one was Don Kirshner's rock concert, Seeing Suicide on there, and it was Cream. Yeah. Because Cream was the first magazine where I actually got wind of the Cramps, Johnny Thunders, and the Heartbreakers. This was before MRR. This was before yeah. I discovered Maximum Rock and Roll and fanzines and all of that. It was just, and this was even when Blondie was considered punk. I mean, when the Talking right. Heads were considered punk, all of that. Yeah, uh, they were the only ones that were writing about that stuff, at least in any kind of real meaningful way, and especially on the newsstands, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they were number two at one point in the 70s. They were number two to Rolling Stone uh, in circulation numbers. We're talking about a magazine, you know, it's, you know, over 100,000 circulation. And to, to take a chance on the band like the Cramps or the Ramones or, you know, we're not getting any radio airplay whatsoever. Perubu, all these ba- all this punk rock stuff that was happening, Ian Hornos was writing about it. Certainly. No. No. Earlier on, I asked you about whether 68, 69 was the only time that Cream could have come out. Am I reading right that your film also says that this magazine couldn't have come out of anywhere but Detroit? Because at that period, it was very political. There was a lot of violence. There were all these great acts that were coming out of Detroit at that time or through that whole decade. So have I read that right? That you're also saying that really that Cream was the perfect magazine for Detroit. It couldn't have come out of Los Angeles or New York. That was certainly the case I was making, yeah. I mean, I I just think that everything came together. It all worked hand in hand. The fact that you had the music that was coming out of Detroit at that time was such a reflection of the times and, uh, you know, whether it was proto-punk stuff like MC5 or, you know, go even earlier with Motown. I mean, there was so much stuff going on in Detroit and um, it really, it was just such a, a reflection of what was going on and it, and all of that energy. It was just this, you know, it was just one of those periods and, you know, it was just this white hot time and it, you know, it had to be documented somehow. And it was, like I said, it was only natural that uh, it would come from a place like Detroit. I gave Cleveland with a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because Freed coined the phrase in Cleveland. But as far as I'm concerned, you know, the only reason it's not in Detroit is because you're never going to hear anybody say, hey, honey, put the kids in the car. We're driving to Detroit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, it, but because to me, Detroit, that's the rock and roll city for me in the United States, period. It's like, that's it, man. Like, there's no. I, I'm with you. I think even more, I think in some ways, even more than, more so than New York City. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and arguably LA. I mean, LA was different. It was just a different thing, but um, right. Detroit had a very specific 
thing that it can lay claim to. Both New York and LA have what were considered vintage punk rock periods, you know, uh, the 70s for New York and the early 80s for Los Angeles. But with proto-punk, it, it certainly sounds, as you're saying, with the MC5 and the early sounds That's of Alice funny. Cooper. Uh, Stooges, and, Sonic Rendezvous Band, like all yeah. that shit. And one of my favorite bootlegs is one that was based on the Nuggets set called Michigan Nuggets. And there's a ton of great acts on that, you know, stuff which was, if not for that bootleg, it would have been all lost to the miss of time, but all very tough sounding acts. You know, Bob Seger before he um, became pop in the 70s. One thing I love in the film is when you're talking to Brother Wayne, when he's actually saying back in the day, all the rock acts would actually go and see the Motown acts. And then the Motown acts would actually go and see all the rock acts. And I think that that's a definitive part to me of what really is one of the key elements of what was going on with music in Detroit at the time was the whole blending of race was that and the blending of music and that nobody really looked at one as being greater than the other. And I mean, as much as there was all the racial divide on the street, when it came to the clubs and it came to the music, everybody saw everything as one and the same, you know? I was going to say, and there's also that bit that I love. And to me, it's like this last week, it was the 50th year that MC5's High Time just came out. And when you actually hear that track, Skunk, sonically speaking, when Sun Ra's orchestra, they got it together with the MC5. Yeah, I mean, Kramer's a huge Coltrane. That whole band was, you know, really big into um, a lot of that. You know, I mean, Wayne Kramer to this day, you know, talks about how what a big influence Coltrane was. And, and so it would only make sense to have Sun Ra and, and, uh, and those guys all come together. Pharaoh Saunders, all those guys. Yeah. 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 But, I, but you know, I, that, uh, it's funny you brought that part up because I could relate to that because there's, um, in Salad Days, there was two kinds of music that were going on in, in DC. Go-Go. Uh, that's right. right? Yeah. And so the punks would go see the Go-Go shows and a lot of the Go-Go guys would come to the punk rock shows. It was more like punk rock kids going to see Go-Go because it was just like, it was so much fun. You couldn't, not dance even if you're like a dorky white guy like me it was like you know you just couldn't stand still i felt like there was a nice little thread there again it's a it's a these two cities that are not in the on the coasts they had to create something that's entirely their own right and but, they have this music that's kind of indigenous just to their city and or right. a sound or a, or an aesthetic and so th- that that i really that's one of the things that i i felt like there were a lot of parallels for both films and i thought absolutely I, and with, with you know with cream with the magazine in itself it was like a plot where it was just kind of like you got something to throw in throw it yeah do it yeah well, there was no rules in terms of like you couldn't review oh that's not rock and roll okay well you know no you, you'd see a McCoy Tyner record or something next to a uh, Sonny Chirac and then Throbbing Gristle I mean it would all right. be in one and then Aerosmith it would all be in one issue um, right I love the, the editorial freedom there I think that stopped maybe or it didn't stop but I think it as the 80s went on and publishers changed I think some of that wasn't quite the same but uh, no, initially no. that was there well through um, the 80s cream just sort of became a brand didn't it I mean like once there was no Lester once there was no Dave Marsh once there was no Barry Kramer other interests came out and bought the magazine out I mean this is based on what I read because you, you only sort of cover just a little bit at the end yeah. of your film about what happened post the classic era of cream that was on purpose the way I kind of look at it and I think even Cameron Crowe might even say it in the film but 
I kind of saw those three guys as like that was like the band. And when the band broke up, then it was like what was left. Um, right. It was still a, still a great you know magazine in, in a lot of ways, but it wasn't. I'm trying one to of those that. bands that uh, tour with no, no original members. It's yeah, just, that's uh, yeah. I was right. trying to There's no room, no room for yeah. tribute acts. Yeah, yeah. it would yeah. be like Led Zeppelin with like the original bass player that tried out. You know, before you know, I don't know. You know, I'm just trying to come up with a yeah. metaphor and it's not working. But anyway, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. They moved to LA and became like there was a lot of hair metal stuff. Of course, the writers that you know had to cover it. You know, the emphasis is had to cover that stuff because the publisher at that point was telling them they had to, as opposed to years before. You know, they hated that stuff. You could see that they hated it, you know, in the writing. One of the writers told me there's a cover of Cream. I'm not sure which issue. I have to find it, but it has Motley Crue on the cover. All the headlines on the front cover are actually all Robin Hitchcock song titles. (laughs) I mean, they hated that shit. You know, they hated the music. So they had to find ways to like subtly still entertain themselves. wrong but i think at the very very end cream morphed into a magazine that was all about music videos uh there was a magazine that was focusing on mtv music videos or, or videos in general and, and i think video games too that it went from cream video game, into yeah, video that, games and then there was another one about music videos or something like that but that's probably right because they did branch out and do a number of different magazines at one point the video game magazine was one of them i believe it was video not video drum i forget the name of it now yeah exactly, i might but, buy it as a kid and i didn't right. know when i was doing research for the film i went oh my god those guys did that so yeah so there was a period of time where they they were doing like three magazines a month, literally, and just cranking them out. Almost inevitably in the 70s, humor meant a certain amount of sexist rhetoric and uh, and jokes. I wanted to ask something about one particular person who shows up in the film who I know of through his website, but had no idea that he was a writer for Cream, and that's Robert Criscow. Oh. Criscow, I'll be polite, is someone who frustrates me through the articles that he's written or you know, his rating system. And it always seemed to me like, oh, this is going to be liked right. I'm, I'm going to shitbag this album. And I've spoken to a few other people who said, yeah, that's the sort of guy who he was. But was that who, what he was doing back in the days? Of cream and did he just sort of think right i've got this persona i'm going to run with it what was robert Criscow's role you know when he was writing for cream well he had his own column what was it called chris Gow's record guide or something like that so i think he he took up about four pages or maybe it was two yeah two spreads i think and yeah i mean he was right in there with the best of i mean he could eviscerate you if you wanted to but again you know these are really smart people a real gift so again even if he's destroying or even if you hate what he's saying it's still being said in a way that no one else is saying at that point, you know, and he can be frustrating. They could all be frustrating. And they, you know, even Lester was annoying sometimes. I was going to say for Lester, I got a feeling with Lester Bangs, he was a little bit to me, almost like Andy Kaufman. Yeah. Where where you couldn't tell if he was taking the piss with you or he was dead serious, you know? No, I agree. I, I made a point of showing in the film too, where, you know, he was like, rock stars are not our friends. It's our job to take them down a few pegs, which they did. Right. But on the other hand, if he got invited to a party with a 
bunch of rock stars, go to the party and hang out with the rock stars. I mean, he right. loved being a celebrity just as much as he making fun of other celebrities. So, I mean, right. he, you know, and he was really larger than life. I mean, there aren't that many writers really that I can think of other than maybe like Hunter S. Thompson or, or something like that, where their celebrity was on almost on par with the people they were interviewing. Did Hunter S. Thompson ever write for Craig? No, never did. But Bukowski did. Strangely. Right. Yes. I saw the in, in your film where you're saying, yeah. showing some snapshots of magazine covers. Yes, I did yeah. see that. Nick Tasha's, uh, Richard Meltzer. I mean, you name it. But Hunter yeah. S. Thompson, I think Hunter had an exclusive with Jan Wenner. I'm pretty sure. Jan would pay him a shit ton of money yeah. to write for him. And I think he kind of owned him. I think in terms of the music world. I think Hunter owned him so much on tabs and everything that he ran up. That oh, it was just cool. kind of, you're an exclusive to us, man, because you owe me. <laughs> yeah. I know for one article, this was in the 70s, he paid Hunter $25,000 to write it. And this is in the 70s. So, wow. You know, so I think he, I think there was a probably a sort of proprietary kind of thing there. I could be wrong, but, right. but no, Hunter never, he, although, you know, you'd think he should have written for him and write up his own, mm. but, but knowing Cream, he probably wanted too much money and they were like, you know, fuck you. Another writer who I could really see based on what I'm understanding now about how Cream worked, someone like Kinky Friedman, I mm-hmm. think he would have been someone who would have been great. No, did he ever write for Cream? That's a really good question. I don't know. I'm going to look that up though, actually. He seems like a good fit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I met Kinky guy like maybe a, 10 years ago or something. Yeah. He should, if he didn't write for Cream, I'd actually be a little shocked. I'm going to look, I'm going to go when I hang up. I'm going to look that up. <laughs> And the other element that I thought was perfect was the boy howdy symbol itself being done by Crumb. And to this day, you know, like I remember going to Detroit and seeing shows with like Negative Approach or Easy Action, John Brandon's other band. Yeah. And, and John's always sporting the boy howdy shirts, you know. It'll never go away. Those that don't know and those that don't, well, whatever, you know, and you need to explain to them. There was this magazine once called Cream. Yeah, that's one of those logos where if you see someone wearing it, you kind of do this nod to each other. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. I got that. I got you. Yeah. And that's a really interesting story that we couldn't, there was some stuff there I couldn't get into with Crumb. And I think there's kind of a weirdness there a little bit. I can't get into it. But again, what a perfect guy to, or personality to be a part of the Boy Howdy story, right? The Cream story was our Crumb. Sure. Part of the counterculture that Cream was a part of. It's always ironic as well that Crumb was not a fan of any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. He'd rather be listening to, you know, uh, old country blues records from the 20s. And yet that iconic image that he created for something which is, you know, one of the most renowned and respected yeah. parts of the counterculture in a way, you know? Absolutely. I don't think he owns anything that's not at 78 RPM. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe it. Yeah. <laughs> and he hates that stuff. But yeah, it was, he needed the money and he just scribbled it out and boom. And then it became this... You know, um, and no one really fully knows what the hell it means. And uh, <laughs> I kind of like that, too. Like, you ask 20 different people and you get 20 different answers. It was a boys magazine. It was meant for teenage boys. Did girls read it? Sure they did. It was only sexually provocative when it was funny. Was it offensive? Always. Those captions, was I offended? I wrote probably half of all those captions. Am I proud of that? It was the 70s. I mean, they weren't the same filters there are now. I mean, 
Tell me. Here's a question that might be a little difficult to answer. And I'm just wondering, do you see anything today in media that really has that kind of vibrancy or anything like on the net in terms of like music sites or even magazines in general or even podcasts that have that kind of the vibrancy of the spontaneity that, that you saw in Korean magazine? I think probably podcasts might have the best chance to capture some of that just because right. it's so immediate. It's so spontaneous and you're just, you're, you're in there and you're, but in terms of websites, you know, I don't want to sound completely uninformed, but I don't read that many. I have my music sites that I read just for my daily news or whatever. I don't feel any of that sense of urgency or any of the stuff that Cream captured or even the writing. I mean, it's the editing is so sloppy in so many websites that I see it makes me crazy. But, you know, Pitchfork is obviously does really well for themselves. And I think they have pretty high editorial standards. I don't agree with a lot of it. And but that's the point. Who right? does? So. But even even like today, like comedy, like, for example, Bernie, I was thinking of the best show. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. In WFMU, yeah. What yeah. he's done to me is kind of the equivalent in terms of comedy, in terms of just that feel. That's a great example. Yeah. I think that's where you're going to find that kind of attitude and that kind of smarts. I don't see it happening in, a, in certainly not in a magazine format. Print media is almost a thing of the past now, isn't it? Yeah. And I'm someone that it took a long yeah. time for me to say that. You know, I really, I would fight you. <laughs> you know, same, same. For years, I would fight you on that and not anymore. I just, you know, it's. I'd yeah. still rather, uh, you know, read a magazine about this kind of stuff though like um you know uh mike mcgonagall's maggot brain that he's putting out oh yeah maggot brain's yeah. coming back yep yeah fantastic motor booty, motor booty. That was yeah. Yep. yeah one of my yeah. favorites uh anything mcgonagall does is good yeah, he's great i just picked yeah. up the maggot brain a couple months ago i just i picked that up and uh yeah henry owen did uh chunk- henry- chocolate i mean motor booty was probably the closest in terms of like a yeah. i mean well they're from detroit but right. that cream spirit right what was it the beastie boys did grand royal for yeah, a while that was good grand royal I thought did a really good job of that too. Raygun sort of captured some of that stuff in the 90s. Your Flesh as well. I think that yeah. had a sort of Detroit yeah. and that was a good one. David B. Livingstone, I think, was a Detroit yeah. guy. Yeah. yeah, Peter Davis published Your Flesh. That was yeah. a great yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Peter, Your Flesh is fantastic. Forced exposure, of course. Oh, yeah. Also. And you know, what? this is going to sound weird to some people, but I mean, I think some people do understand that I love the smell of books. Oh, me too. Of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and the tangible, like all the tangible holding something tangible yeah i did magazines for years and i loved going and doing a press check because i could smell the paper god i sound old but the magazines would get delivered by a truck and you you just it's just that tactile there's a very not just going in your eyes you know it's it's the whole physicality of it yeah it's the smell of the ink and uh yeah yeah, there's a a relationship that you develop i know it sounds odd it's no different than having it's like holding you know reading a book it's the same thing i'd much rather read a book than exactly or the same argument that that we as music fans make about physical media in general you know, yeah yeah your, your records or cds or yeah, whatever rather than stream right? we've been all de- debating about this stuff for years right like with lps and cds we were like fuck cds like you want to have like an lp where you can like posters you know, stickers poster. yeah you want to yeah. feel that vinyl you know all that so no I'm, I'm still very much a part i mean i i still cling to that stuff but I also know that that's not you know in terms of I wouldn't ever like if someone were to ask me hey you want to launch a magazine I would say are you crazy (laughs) (laughs) but that's uh, that's experience speaking isn't it at this point so unfortunately yeah I mean I you know I I made a living and I made a nice living for almost 10 years doing one and then it was like 2008 2009 it just like boom it's just like vibe me a bunch of other magazines we all within a matter of six months it's just like off a cliff I'd still sad to me now to go to a newsstand and see 
I mean, there used to be aisle after aisle of magazines, some of the bigger brick and mortar stores. And now there's, you're lucky if there's one. You can strike a balance between approaching music as politics or approaching music without being able to separate it from politics. You can't. Which you is can't separate well, it, though. But see, the thing is, like, if you separate it, I mean, what's the point? Because if you separate well, it, what value does it have? It's I just another piece of music. It ain't no better or worse. Separated from its context, though, and its context is decidedly, if not political, sociological. I wanted to come back to just a couple of questions in relation to the film itself. There's a little bit of footage that you have in the film, black and white footage that was shot in the offices of Cream, and there's even something that looks like an ad, a TV ad. Where did you get that footage? Was that just eight millimeter footage that the guys shot for their own enjoyment? Was that done for some local cable TV show? What was it all about? Where'd you get that footage? A little above. The stuff with Barry later on in the movie when he's, you know, his health is, we're trying to kind of visually show just his decline physically too. You can see it in his face where he's sort of lost weight and he's just, just not there versus the stuff that opens the film. It's just kind of a cold open with, you know, them in the newsroom. And then you're getting this guided tour of the offices. I'm not sure if the film would have succeeded in the same way that it did if we didn't have that footage, because it was so important to me to, to be able to show just what it was like to work there. And I mean, you can almost, you watch that, you can almost smell it. You know what I mean? And when I saw that footage, I got that really early on. That was done by a local PBS affiliate in Detroit. And it was about 20 minutes worth. And when I saw that, I said, okay, we've got a movie. <laughs> because how do you make a film? You know, there's so many people in the beginning when I said, no, I'm going to, I want to make a film about cream. I want to make, I'm doing a doc on cream. And it's like, first of all, how do you make a documentary on a magazine? Well, I already had it in my head. So I was like, don't worry about it. I got this. But then when I saw that footage, I, I just went, okay, now I can show you you know, in this way where you can experience it in a way where it's not just talking heads. The place was filthy. Well, now you can see how filthy it was. Right. It's kind of like, almost like Das Boot where you're on the submarine. Right. You know, you're you're right in it. <laughs> like claustrophobic and yeah, yeah. like you can, like I said, you can almost smell it. It's, it's yeah. just, we were really lucky to have that footage. That, Like I said, that footage to me really makes, you know, makes the film work. One thing I was going to ask too is, well, first off, I wanted to say thank you for including, man, to me, one of the greatest songs ever written singles of all time city slang I wanted to include and I look at the list of stuff if you see the original cut and you see all the music that was in there it kills me to how hard was it for you to clear a lot of stuff I mean obviously for Wayne it wouldn't have been a big issue but I mean it's just I wonder how hard was it for you to try to get some stuff for the music for the film it wasn't a lot of it was not easy um, there was stuff in there that I just couldn't get and even the MC5 stuff was difficult really um, yeah I mean Wayne Kramer wrote the score for the, for the film right so we were lucky in that regard there were only certain MC5 songs that we were able to use so uh, yeah it was difficult and not cheap you know just to have an Iggy song in there but you can't make a film about Detroit and about Cream and not have an Iggy Pop you know nope. so it had to be in there um, exactly I love how you set the film up over the opening credits with 1969 as the opening song I mean, it's perfect it's like boom the moment the film starts you know what you're in for right it's absolutely perfect all right
Thank you, thank you. All of that came together. I want to say it came together easily, it didn't. But when you watch it now, you go, of course, like you would choose that song and do this. But I, I love that intro. I, I was really happy with it. There's like people like JJ Kramer, the son of Barry and Connie, as well as Connie herself, who are involved as producers or executive producers. And Jean Rogelski, who's working as your co-writer for yep. the film, who was a senior editor at yep. Cream. So did they approach you to say, we want to make this documentary about Cream or? I actually approached them. I, I had worked, Jan was my senior editor for six years when I was doing the magazine. So, okay. so I knew Jan very well and we of course stayed in touch. And when I was done with Salad Days and I was wrapping all that up, I had actually already started working on an outline for Cream while Salad Days was still like in theaters. I reached out to a Jan, uh, connected me with JJ and a number of other filmmakers had, had approached him and I kind of told him my outline and kind of my vision for how I saw the story being told and we just immediately hit it off and, and that was the, the story that I think he wanted to focus on And but it meant a lot to me I mean I didn't take it lightly I said what's off limits in this film because we need to get that out of the, the way you know now and he, to his credit he said nothing because I wanted to tell a warts and all story because right, right. I, I, I knew enough I'd worked with enough of the writers over the years that I knew a lot of that stuff already and I said well yeah, it's the only way you can tell it it was in that sort of uh, very truthful honest way it's kind of hard when you're sitting there listening to JJ talk about his dad. It was tough. A lot of yeah. those things were really tough for him to shoot. There were several months worth of shoots that we had to do. It, it was right. tough. It was tough. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how he did it. I don't know if I would have been able to, to do it. Well, I mean, he grew up tough, I guess. You know, four years old and he was the chairman of the board. So. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. One story I'd like, if you could please recount for our listeners who may not have seen the film yet, and it absolutely had me pissing myself with laughter, and I'm sure you already know which one it is, but it involves Dave Marsh, Lester Bangs, and a dog. Oh, yeah. As I said, I had heard a lot of the stories through the years, and that was one story that I had known about and couldn't wait to tell. And it took us about, <coughs> excuse me, about two years to get Dave Marsh on board for the film. And I was like, I can't tell that story without getting Dave Marsh's reaction. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, Dave and Lester were the two big, well, there's a lot of big personalities in that magazine, in that newsroom, but they were the two of the biggest. And they, Dave is, you know, a type A kind of guy. And, and Lester's like a complete train wreck, hot mess, and uh, was a total slob and was always making a mess. And, and Lester had a dog and Dave had a dog and Lester's dog just shit all over the place. And one day Dave just got tired of it and he picked up Lester's dog's pile of shit and he put it right on Lester's typewriter. Lester walks into the... To, into the room knows immediately who put the dog shit on his typewriter and him and and then he <laughs> Dave wakes up and he comes down because at that point they were all living in a house together and uh, the fight started in the offices went all the way out into the driveway you know I think Dave got smacked I mean Lester's a big dude and Dave's like maybe five 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 six yeah so it got very physical Office I love that crazy. bit where Dave says well he wasn't trying to kill me he was yeah. just hitting my head with the car door <laughs> exactly. 
I love that. No, that was great. Yeah. The other great Lester bit in the film is when you get the interview with Pete Wolf, when he's talking about how him and Lester having the argument about reviewing and music. And then Pete says, well, then bring it to the stage, man. So then, you know, how he winds up on stage with a typewriter and trash does the Pete Townsend and trash. Yeah. That was like the most, that's such a great story. I mean, oh, yeah. how would that ever happen now? I can't even imagine who would do that now. But yeah, but, but again, that goes back to the celebrity thing too. I think Lester right. loved that. Taking a typewriter and throwing it into the... I mean, that's about as rock and roll as you can get. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I can't see somebody today doing it with a laptop sitting there on a stage, you know, with like an EDM concert with no. a little laptop typing away and just throwing their laptop on the floor. Wouldn't happen. <laughs> no. I know that here in Melbourne and I'm sure in many other cities around the world, we have big writers' festivals. My sister often goes to them. I'm going to say to her, hey, can you suggest that at the next writers' festival that you're allowed to go to post-COVID that someone does something really punk rock like throwing their laptop out <laughs> into the audience? Yeah. Love that idea. One final question that I've got in relation to the, well, there's more to do with the magazine. I can't, I don't think he actually told this in the film, but I found an article at a music forum that Lester Bangs had written about Exile on Main Street. And so he was you know, famously known for having completely destroyed the album and then came out later and said, I was wrong, I was wrong. Uh, I mean, look, I read the article and it wasn't actually a complete destroyal of the album. It was more like, you know, side one and side four are pretty great. Side two and side three have got a lot to answer for. But I think his, his contention seemed to be that we expect brilliance from the Stones and this is merely just good. How controversial was that article, that original article before he recounted it later on? I'm not sure. How, I, I, I don't know. Um, it's not really talked about as much. Usually you hear more about, you know, the stuff he said about the, uh, Lou Reed or, or the Velvet Underground, stuff like that. But certainly, yeah, I'm sure there were tons of letters to the editor on that one. And, you know, that wasn't the first time that he would backpedal. <laughs> backpedal. Thank you. Uh, he did the same thing with MC5. You know, he destroyed yep. MC5's first record. Yep. He actually destroyed that review view actually was in Rolling Stone, not Cream, where he just destroyed their debut album. And then, of course, you know, a year later, he moves to Detroit and him and Wayne are best friends. And that's a big love that. So. so artists tend to really have a good sense of humor about what came out of Cream. I mean, it, it, it would seem so. Some of the photos that you show, that they'd, they'd be posing for things with you know maybe non-flattering yeah. bylines about them well when you talk about posing it actually got me to remember something that i remember exactly from cream i know you wouldn't know this morris but there was actually every issue had a famous celebrity like a, a musician holding the bottle and it would just have a questionnaire to have the name of the person and then them holding the bottle like in a certain provocative pose the boy howdy bottle right and then it would just be like kind of a bio but that was a definitive part of every issue of cream was that somebody in a funny pose because I remember Lemmy from Motorhead doing one and I think Debbie Harry doing one and yeah like but it was just Wendy O. Williams well that, that was for a cheesecake thing that was a little different yeah, <laughs> that was but, a, uh, uh, Cream Dream I believe right was called. but yeah the um, the the Boy Howdy Can with the beer I had to admit uh, when I found out years later that that was just a label they put on 
I was so pissed off. You know? <laughs> I had someone in the in the movie, you know, I think Scott, one of the writers actually says, you know, that was like, there is no Santa Claus. Uh, <laughs> you know, Pretty much. I was convinced it was like a beer you could buy in 7-Eleven. Well, that's as bad as the Stooges Wax Museum. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was Motor Booty, right? Yep. Yeah, Yeah. they said more as they started to rumor that there was a Stooges Wax Museum just outside of Detroit and, you know. People put up. People went yep. looking for it and stuff. Yeah, and yeah. of course there, it didn't exist. Yeah, the, they were really good at branding more so than any other magazine because now here it is we're still talking about it and cream now no longer exists as a magazine but as a brand you know it's up there with people wear like black flag or sex pistols t-shirts even if they've never the band it's it's kind of like cream like the cream logo right i'm sure most people that wear a cream t-shirt know about cream but i'm sure there are plenty of others i mean john barbados is probably selling it for 200 dollars in his store or something yeah. so is that the antithesis of what barry kramer would have hoped for in the original days of cream i think he was the the brains behind that and knew how important branding was and so he would have loved it even see there in the film i don't want to give it away but at a certain point in the film you can see where he turns dave marsh around and dave's wearing a cream t-shirt and he said you know someday this shirt's going to be a collector's item barry was always thinking big and was always thinking dollar signs you know right i'm really surprised that cream never had went into their own kind of concert events there's so much they could, you know, and I think JJ is doing an amazing job now with Cream and um, and the brand now. And I would not be surprised to see that kind of thing. I know nothing. I don't no, know. no, no, but I'm saying back in the I day. like when totally see him. He's smart enough and he's got a great team with him right now. And yeah. I think they could do, they could branch out into so many different things. So I wouldn't be shocked if you see that. The film now, I mean, obviously, you know, we're saying at the beginning because of COVID and things have changed, but. Did it get a chance to show like on any film festival circuits or in, in yeah, general, it, like um, in the theater? Oh, yeah, for sure. It, it premiered at South by Southwest, and then it did a number of film. I mean, we did a ton of film festivals, so it was great to really see it, you know, with an audience and to experience it. We premiered it in Detroit at the uh, Freep Film Festival in Detroit, and there were over a thousand people there. It's a huge theater, and that was huge. To, and to see it with the hometown crowd, you know, it was kind of like when Sal Days played in D.C. to the hometown crowd. It was really important to me. It's kind of the most nerve-wracking, like, <clears throat> are you going to get it right if the hometown crowd is like, oh, man digging it then that's kind of a like a barometer of like what the rest of the world's gonna think about it didn't you use the dirt bombs or was it what am i thinking of did uh, i hear the, the dirt bombs in the soundtrack not the, not the dirt bombs but um or danny's other band was it the doll rods no the gories the gories thank you yeah, it was the gories then yeah i thought i heard i heard something and i was just like wait a minute man, i know what that is yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And everyone just let me do it. Like I was like, no, no, I got, I, I got this. So um, I chose all the music and, and Sweet. the Gories. I was like, no, I got it. And the Gore, the great thing about the Gories is that you know that's a ten or twenty year old song maybe, but it sounds so much a part of like right. that, that it was like perfect. And they're from Detroit. And was, right. So now I had a lot of fun with that. There was a lot of great music in that film. And what have you got lined up now? Right now, I'm working on a documentary about a guy named Joe Keithley. Oh, Joe. I know Uncle Joey. Yeah. Okay. So Joe, otherwise known as Joey Shithead, Joey was in a okay. Still is in a band called DOA. Greatest punk rock bands of you know, arguably over the last four years. There, you know, in the '80s, it was like DOA, Black Flag, Minor Threat, Dead Kennedy. SNFU. Yep. Yeah, and they're from Canada. And so Joey has actually he's still in the band, uh, still performing, still touring the world, but uh, ran for a council member seat in his town of. Bur- 
Burnaby, which is about a 300,000 population city. Yep. It's not, not a small town by any means as a Green Party member and won uh, against all odds. So to me, it's just like great, like David and Goliath kind of thing. And just putting together his activism and his being very politically active and outspoken for the last 40 years and now putting it into practice as an actual politician, I thought would make for an interesting doc. So what we're doing is we're following him as he campaigns next year. We'll be shadowing him while he's campaigning, going door to door, trying to get votes and try to win re-election and win or lose, that'll be the film. I know everybody says this every other second, man, but Joey is one of the nicest guys you will ever yeah. meet in your entire life. I mean, that guy is so down to earth. It's not even funny. You know, every time I saw DOA come in and play, they'd unload the van. He'd be the first one pulling out, the, you know, pulling out the cabinets and everything. And we'd go out yeah. and help him. And, hey, guys, how you doing? Hey, Joe, what's up, man? Like, just so down to earth. Very down to earth. Their whole, their slogan was talk minus action equals zero. And that's really what the film is about. So I've been wanting to make like a more of a politically sort of minded film. And I thought this was the perfect way to do it. So it's really not so much a DOA film as it is more about this person that's been out there talking the talk, make real change. What's interesting too, is when he comes from his beginnings and you know about the Squamish. Mm-hmm. Yep. That'll yeah. Be and about all that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting how you can go from the politics of extremism when you're younger and go through all that kind of caustic stuff and now winding up where he is now. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah and that can never happen in America. So I think it's an interesting study of that as well. Uh, for those who don't know, well, first of all, the guy's name is Joey Shithead. In America, that just wouldn't fly. Okay. But he's always been a radical lefty and remains that today. But he was also affiliated, you know, you mentioned the Squamish Five, you know, affiliated with a number of people that were very radical, like much more so than, than he was to the point where they were imprisoned for various things that they, that they did. So here he is 40 years later, he's like this icon in Canada, he's like this you know, cult figure. So I'm I'm really looking forward to doing a story where it's taking place right now, as opposed to, I mean, there'll be some of the film where you, obviously for context, where you have to look back and explain who this person is and why you're watching this film. But the rest right. of it's going to be, you know, in real time watching it unfold. You know, what's really funny, Morris, Bernie, is like for the equivalent in Canada, a lot of people, he's like basically our Canadian uh, Woody Guthrie, same attitude, the same kind of ideals. Yeah, if you said that to him, he would be, um, I'm sure you'd make his day. But he even played with Pete Seeger you know, in the 80s, they shared the protest show together. So yeah, so there's a lot of great people in the film. Um, you can check out the trailer if you want. If you do, um, there's a Facebook page for it. The name of the film is called Something Better Change. If you go on Facebook, you can you can see it. And uh, the trailer is on there. Uh, the trailer's got, the film's going to have everyone from Duff McKagan, Jello Biafra, Beto O'Rourke, who's a, a popular liberal Democrat here in America, is in the film. Ian Mackay, Henry Rollins, Keith Morris, you know, a lot of the familiar faces. But as I said, they'll help tell that early part of the story. And then the rest of the film will really be, I'll be literally shadowing him. I'm not exactly sure, but I think, rethink that they redid uh, Fucked Up Ronnie was Fucked Up Donnie. They did. Yeah, that's what I thought. Fucked Up Ronnie was a song about Ronald Reagan in the 80s. Right. It was kind of, you know, one of their popular songs. Dipshit Donald Trump took over. In America, 2016, they changed the song and changed the lyrics to Fucked Up Donnie. They've always had a good sense of humor, as well as being very serious politically. A huge thanks to you, Scott, for taking the time. Zoom connection even came up with a message saying, we're giving you a gift. You can talk beyond 40 minutes. Yeah, they know a good thing. Indeed, they do. I learned a lot from watching this documentary. Thank you so <laughs> much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Well, I had yeah, a, thank you so much, man. Absolutely. I had a blast, and uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Take care, everyone. Thanks, Scott. Well, we do appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks man. a lot, man.
Yes, you got it, man. Anytime. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to episode 87 of See Here Podcast. And we're back. Our huge gratitude to uh, Scott Crawford for taking the time and for making such a really wonderful documentary. It's available on the streaming platforms out there. We'll put in the show notes exactly where it is that you can see that, and it's really well worth your time. It's very tight, only 75 minutes, has everything you need to know about cream, and there's plenty in there. So next month, it's Bernie's pick. Despite what we were talking about 10 minutes ago, I do have a choice. Okay, good. (laughs) Um, So we are going to do a film from 1984, directed by uh, one Alan Rudolph. Oh, yeah. Starring starring Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson, and it is called Songwriter. Excellent. I watched this while we were prepping for Outlaw Blues. Good. Uh, Well, I haven't watched it yet. It'll be a first time uh, watch for me, so uh, this should be uh, interesting then. Spoiler alert, you're in for a treat. Oh, I do. I'm a big Adam Rudolph fan. so um, He's he's done a number of music-related projects as well. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it should be fun. All right, excellent. Some uh, country music sounds and some very black humour coming at your ear holes for uh, next month's episode of See Here. If you want to get in contact with us, email us at seeherepodcast at gmail.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast follow us on instagram uh, at see here podcast and that is pretty much it so until next month read some good rock journalism something that might rile you up probably pitchfork have some fun with it <laughs> be nice listen to some great podcasts and listen to anything in the pantheon network just generally be nice to each other all the best cheers cheers bye bye Woo!